couple quick stories for you before we dive into God's Word this morning. A man had some time to kill on a Saturday afternoon, went to his local park, saw that there was a little league game being played. So he went up and leaned against the chain link fence, and he was able to catch the attention of a little boy in the dugout. And so he called over to the little boy, asked him, hey, what's the score? The little guy answered back, 18 to 0, the other team's up. And the man said, 18 to 0, man, you must be really discouraged. Little boy looked at him with a puzzled look on his face. He said, Why should I be discouraged? We haven't gotten up to bat yet. That little guy had some hope, don't you think? <laughs> 18 runs in one inning. It's not looking too good, but he thinks they're going to get up and win. Heard a story about a pastor. A guy came into his office one day and he said, Pastor, man, my heart's really heavy. It just My life is just messed up. I, I've just got no peace at all. And the pastor was one of those guys that he, he prided himself in giving some very creative counsel. And so he responded to the guy, well, here is the secret to attaining peace. You need to go home and finish everything that you have started. Because we lack peace in our lives when we have unfinished projects and things in our lives. You need to finish what you've started. The man said, okay. Came back the next day, and the pastor asked him, hey, how are things going since we last talked? And the guy says, you wouldn't believe it. I went home, and I took your advice. I decided I'm going to finish what I've started. So I went home yesterday, and I finished that bottle of red wine, and I finished that bottle of white wine. I finished a box of chocolates, a cheesecake, and the rest of my Prozac. I'm feeling really at peace. When it comes down to it, we seek solutions for peace that only Jesus Christ can offer. Amen? The world chases after peace, and they're looking for peace in all the wrong places. Looking for peace in so many faces. Don't mind if I twist the song just a little bit, do you? The world has all sorts of ideas about how to find peace, and we know that there's only one Prince of Peace, and his name is Jesus Christ. Today, as we begin this Christmas series, we're going to talk about the hope and also the peace that Jesus Christ brings at Christmas. So have your Bibles ready. We'll open in just a moment to a book in the Old Testament. But first, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you so much that you offer us peace through Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to that hope and the peace that you alone can bring us. Help us, Lord, to be attuned to your word because you have so much to say and we're only scratching the surface of all your word has to say about these glorious subjects. And, Lord, I just pray if there's anyone here who is discouraged today, that you would give them that peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, anyone who's lacking hope today, Lord, that you would speak hope into their lives through your word. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, this past week in my preparation for this message, we're going to start and talk about hope for a little while, and then we'll switch gears and talk about peace about halfway through the message. But as I was diving into this study this last week, uh, I was curious about how often we find the word hope mentioned in the Bible. And so I looked at my NIV concordance, and in the NIV translation of the Bible, we find the word hope used 182 times. That's a lot of hope, isn't it? 
182 times you find hope in the Bible. A little more than half of those uses are in the Old Testament. A little less than half are used in the New Testament. And since the New Testament is just the last one quarter of the Bible, it's safe to say that there's uh, more concentrated hope in the New Testament than in the Old. Amen? It's one of the reasons we as Christians spend more time in the New Testament than the Old. Now, I asked a question this last week at the start of my study that I thought was a pretty interesting question, and it went like this. Where is the word hope first found in the Bible? And I asked myself that question, where is hope first mentioned in the Bible? And I didn't know the answer to that question. Do you? Let me ask you, where in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, where in the book of Genesis do you find the word hope? Do you remember? How about in the book of Exodus? Do you remember where it's found in Exodus? How about the third book, Leviticus? I was shocked to discover as I was doing my studies that the word hope is not used in the book of Genesis or in Exodus or in Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy or Joshua or Judges. You have to go all the way to the eighth book of the Bible, the book of Ruth, to find the word hope mentioned for the first time. I found that rather remarkable that you look at what the Jewish scholars would consider to be the core of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, all 613 laws of Moses are there in those first five books, yet the word hope isn't mentioned a single time. I find that remarkable. Not until the 8th book, and I want you to see it for yourself, so turn to the 8th book of the Bible, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, where that word hope is mentioned for the first time. And interestingly, when hope is finally mentioned in the 8th book of the Bible, it's not a very hope-filled use of that word. And you're going to see in a moment the context for this first use, and I, I just find this remarkable. Let me quickly give you a heads up on what happens in the first 11 verses of Ruth chapter 1. In the first 11 verses, we're introduced to this man named Elimelech. Elimelech, Elimelech was a Jewish man, lived in Israel. He was married to a woman by the name of Naomi, and they had two sons. Their names were Malon and Kilion. So it was a happy family of four, but because Israel was experiencing a famine, they moved to the country of Moab to escape the famine for a few years. But tragedy struck this family of four there in that area of, of uh, Moabite. Well, tragedy came, but we find that there was some good as well. We find that when they got to this area of Moab, the two sons came of age, and Malon and Kilion each married a Moabitess woman. Uh, one married a uh, lady by the name of Ruth, and the other married one by the name of Orpah. But then tra- tragedy struck. After the two young men in this family of four got married to these Moabitess women, their dad died. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, passes away there in Moab. And then shortly thereafter, Naomi's two sons die. And so now she is the lone member of that family of four that had come from Israel. And so she and her two uh, daughters-in-law are all widows. And so she decides she's going to head back to her homeland of Israel And she decides that she needs to tell her daughters-in-law to stay put because they weren't Israelite. They were Moabite. She thought they should stay put. And that's where we pick up in verse 12 of Ruth chapter 1. Amen, if you're there. Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope, 
for me. Even if I had a husband right now and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they were grown up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. So think about this. In the first seven books of the Bible, you won't find the word hope mentioned a single time. And finally, as we get to the eighth book of the Bible, we find hope, but it's not a very hopeful verse, is it? Naomi says, there is no hope for me. She feels utterly hopeless. She's convinced that God's hand was against her. But do you remember the end of the story? You remember the end of the story. Naomi says, I'm going back to my homeland of Israel. And she tells her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. And Orpah weeps and says, no, I'll go with you. And she says, no, you need to stay here. And Orpah said, okay. And so she hugged her mother-in-law goodbye and she went home. And then Ruth said, I refuse to separate from you, Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your land will be my land. Your country will be my country. Your God will be my God. And Naomi could not talk Ruth out of it. So Ruth went back to Israel with Naomi. Do you remember what the name of Naomi's hometown was? Maybe it's a town you've heard of, a little town by the name of Bethlehem. And here Naomi was saying, there is no hope for me. She goes back to her homeland of Israel and to her hometown of Bethlehem. And there in Bethlehem, her daughter-in-law Ruth meets a man. You remember his name? His name was Boaz. And they fall in love. They get married. And you remember that Boaz has a son by the name of Obed. Obed is Ruth and Boaz's son. And then Obed has a son by the name of Jesse. And Jesse of Bethlehem has a son by the name of David who was the greatest king in the history of Israel. Naomi here in Ruth chapter 1, as she uses the word hope for the first time in the Bible, says, my situation is utterly hopeless, but she must have forgotten with God there is always hope. She didn't understand that as she would go back to her homeland of Israel with her daughter-in-law Ruth with her, Ruth would marry Boaz, and Ruth would be the great-grandmother of the greatest king in Israel's history, and Naomi herself would be the great-great-grandmother of the greatest king in Israel's history, and it was just warming up because the great-great-great-great-great and a lot of other great-grandsons of King David would be none other than the little child born in a stable in Bethlehem, and placed in a manger, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, with God involved, there is always hope. There is always hope. Not only was Naomi's situation not hopeless, God had filled her situation with more hope than she could have ever imagined. Naomi would go down in history as the great-great-grandmother of King David, who would one day write in Psalm 25, 3 and 5, No one whose hope is in you, O God, will ever be put to shame. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are my God, my Savior, and my hope. My hope is in you all day long. Several hundred years later, God reminded his followers with these words in Jeremiah 29.11. How many of you would say that Jeremiah 29.11 is your favorite verse in the Bible? There's always a few. What a wonderful verse. 
What a wonderful verse. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So often when we're down in the dumps, we take comfort in that, in that verse there. We say, I don't understand this situation, God. It feels like my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. It feels like you have abandoned me. And then we're reminded from Jeremiah 29, 11, he has plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans to give us a future and a bright hope. Isaiah 49, 23, God simply says, those who hope in me will not be disappointed. How many of you have found that true in your Christian walk? You put your hope in God and he lets you down, doesn't he? Never. Never. It might take a little while, but you be patient. If you put your hope in him, you will never be disappointed. Let's step back and ask a very basic question when it comes to hope. And the basic question is, what is hope? Well, what is hope? First of all, before we give a definition, know that hope deals with two things. It deals with the unseen, and it deals with the future. So if you have hope in something, you can't see it with your eyes. It's something that's out there. It's, it's maybe intangible, but it's certainly invisible, and it's something that involves the future. So with that in mind, here's a quick definition of hope as it's used in Scripture. Hope is the happy anticipation of good things to come. That's short and sweet, isn't it? Hope is the happy anticipation of good things to come throughout the Old Testament, God's peace or God's people uh, clung to the hope that one day their promised Messiah would come. They clung to the hope that one day their sins would be permanently forgiven and they wouldn't have to keep sacrificing sheep after sheep and bird after bird. They clung to the hope that there would be a life beyond the grave and a perfect paradise. Even King Solomon, the wisest king in Israel's history, he didn't even know for sure if there was life beyond the grave. The Jewish people in Old Testament times, they hoped that there was, but many weren't convinced. But their hope was finally realized when Jesus Christ came. Amen? Jesus is hope realized. Think about that in Old Testament times, century after century after century, holding on to hope. And as it says in Hebrews 11, the the hall of faith. There in Hebrews 11, it says that all of these lived and died, not seeing with their own eyes what had been promised to them for so many years. But Jesus is hope realized. In Galatians 1.23, Paul encourages us with these words. He says, continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Now, let me ask you, why does the gospel offer us hope? The gospel that we share as a church, why does it offer us hope? I think the simplest answer to that question is the gospel offers us hope because the gospel offers us Jesus, right? Jesus is hope realized. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 5.19, or I should say Hebrews 6.19, that hope is an anchor for the soul. How can that be? How can hope be an anchor for the soul? Hope is an anchor for the soul because Jesus is an anchor for the soul, right? Amen? Amen? 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul teaches us that we as Christ's followers don't need to grieve at Christian funerals like non-Christians grieve at funerals, right? 
How many times have you clung to that verse when a, a Christian brother or sister or Christian family member has passed away? We don't have to grieve like the rest of men because we have hope. We know there's life beyond the grave even though we haven't personally experienced it. We know that there is such a thing called heaven, even though we haven't personally experienced it. We've been promised by our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we know it's true, don't we? Now, I'm going to share a few things that are not in heaven. And some of these might get you a little excited. So if I mention one that you're a little excited about, something that's not going to be in heaven, you go ahead and feel free to shout out an amen. You with me? In heaven, there's going to be no more death. In heaven, there's going to be no more hospital beds. In heaven, there's going to be no more cancer. Amen. In heaven, there's going to be no more diabetes. In heaven, there's going to be no more allergies. In heaven, there's going to be no more Prozac. I was wondering if anyone would be bold enough to say amen to that. In heaven, there's going to... We'll talk later. (laughs) If you don't know, that's a good thing. Okay, in heaven, there's going to be... No more lawyers? No, I can't say that. There's going to probably be a few that make it. In heaven, there's going to be no more what, Glenn? (laughs) In heaven, there's going to be no more wakes. In heaven, there's going to be no more cemeteries. In heaven, there's going to be no more prescription bottles in your medicine cabinet. Amen? In heaven, there's going to be no more dentures. (laughs) Or they're going to be a whole lot better. It was funny at our Friday event with our seniors. Uh, we had the White Elephant Gift Exchange, and someone <laughs> donated a bag full of uh, the, the chocolate reasons, those things that will, like, break your teeth if you try to chew on them, that candy, the chocolate reasons, as a bag of those along with some denture cream. <laughs> I thought that's like the best White Elephant Gift either. You know, if your teeth happen to fall out eating the candy, then here's some denture cream for you. There's going to be none of these things in heaven, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, amen? It's going to be such a glorious thing knowing that there's none of those things in heaven that are such a bummer here on earth. Jesus Christ is preparing heaven for us, and Paul says we don't have to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope because we have hope. Why? Because Jesus Christ is hope realized. Well, we're just warming up. That's hope. Jesus didn't just bring hope. On Christmas morning, he also brought us peace. Amen? 800 years before Christ was born in Bethlehem, God gave the prophet Isaiah some powerful prophecies about Jesus' coming. And one of the best known is Isaiah chapter 9. I want you to see it for yourself, so please turn from the book of Ruth over to the book of Isaiah. It's a little more than half the way through your Bible. Isaiah chapter 9. If you get to the book of Psalms right in the middle of the Bible... Go another 100, 150 pages to the right, and you'll hit the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, one of the most glorious prophecies about Jesus Christ. And, and it just continues to just blow my mind that God spoke this some 600 years before Jesus was actually born. In Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to read verse 2 and verse 6. This is what we read in Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Who do you suppose that light is that God's talking about? Amen. Jesus Christ. And then skipping down, what did I say to verse 9? Uh, verse 6. It says here in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, 
the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What a glorious passage. 600 years before Jesus is born, God is saying, don't worry, the wonderful counselor is coming. You've had some lousy counselors in the past, don't worry, the wonderful counselor is coming. And don't worry, you're, you're wondering if the, the one over all creation is going to be coming in the flesh. Believe me, he is. Be patient. He's coming. He's the mighty God, and he is the Prince of Peace. Christian financial advisor Dave Ramsey says this all the time. He says, remember, there's ultimately only one way to financial peace, and that's to walk daily with the Prince of Peace, Christ Jesus. I love that quote. So true. There's only one true way to financial peace, and that's to walk daily with the Prince of Peace. But what Dave Ramsey says in the context of finances is equally true in our relationship with God the Father. We cannot have peace with God unless we walk daily with the Prince of Peace, Christ Jesus. Amen? It's equally true in our marriages. We cannot have lasting peace in our marriages unless we walk daily with the Prince of Peace, Christ Jesus. It's equally true in our government. It's equally true in our business dealings. It's equally true in our church. Why do our political leaders bicker and fight so much? Why is there so much tension and drama at work? Why do we sometimes in churches across America attend a board meeting and it's more like World War III than it is a church board meeting? It's because we have this bad habit of not walking daily with the Prince of Peace. Another marvelous prophecy about Jesus is recorded in Isaiah chapter 53. You can turn there if you like. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 specifically, where God once again, 600 years or so before Christ is born, gives this glorious prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 5, we read, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds... We are healed. Once again, talking about who? Jesus Christ. Think about these powerful words for a moment. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Many of us hear these words read from Isaiah just about every single Christmas time. But I don't know about you. I haven't really spent a whole lot of time to really try to digest what God means by these words. If you look at the Hebrew there, the Hebrew word used for peace, you could probably guess, is the word Shalom. Say it with me. Shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word for peace. Great, important word in Israel. Uh, The word shalom has been used for many centuries by the Jewish people as their common greeting for each other. They use it as our goodbye or our hello. It's used for both when you meet someone and when you say goodbye to someone. That word shalom is, is such an important part of Orthodox Judaism. So that word shalom, you can use it as a hello or a goodbye, but it means so much more than that. Normally in our Bibles, it's translated as either peace or harmony when it's translated into English. But shalom more literally means wholeness. It means wholeness. So think about this. This word shalom means wholeness. That's why if you go over to Joshua chapter 8 verse 31... In Joshua 8.31, we're told that Joshua made an altar out of shalom stones. Did he make an altar out of peace stones? No. Did he make an altar out of harmony stones? No. He made them out of shalom stones, that literal meaning of the word shalom, meaning those stones were uncut 
those stones were perfectly whole. That's what he made the altar out of. So if shalom refers to wholeness, what exactly is a Jewish man wishing his neighbor when he wishes him shalom? Well, he's wishing him wholeness in his marriage. He's wishing him wholeness in his personal relationships. He's wishing him wholeness with his health. And most importantly, he's wishing him wholeness in his walk with God. So when God tells us in Isaiah 53, 5, that the punishment that brought us shalom was upon Jesus. Hang with me for this. When God says the punishment that brought us shalom was upon Jesus, God is saying this. Jesus Christ was perfectly whole because he was perfectly holy. Jesus is the only man who has ever lived that did not sin a single time. And so because he didn't sin a single time, he deserved no just punishment from God the Father because God would only bring a punishment to someone in justice when that person had actually sinned, right? So Jesus had perfect wholeness in his relationship with God. He deserved no punishment from God, and he allowed in his grace us to have a switcheroo with him. We could adopt his reward and give him our punishment. We could take hold of his shalom wholeness with God and give him our brokenness. I know about you, but it seems like we came out on the right end of that deal. Seems to me that Jesus got the short end of the stick. We came out smelling like a rose. We say, hey, Jesus, I want your reward. Here's my punishment as a trade. God, I I want your shalom, your wholeness in your relationship with God because my relationship with God is completely broken. And that's the opposite of shalom, complete brokenness. And that perfectly describes our relationship with God before we accept Christ. God gave us the opportunity to have a perfectly whole, unblemished, uncracked, unbroken relationship with Him. And all of us blew it, didn't we? The sin that separates us from God is not on God. It's on us. It's 100% our fault. He did nothing to separate us from us. He did nothing to break our relationship with Him. It was all on us. And Jesus Christ came and gave us shalom with God. And He says, I'll take your brokenness. And I got to thinking about this this weekend. When Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe the first thing he was doing was pointing us to Psalm 22 because those exact words are found in Psalm 22, verse 1. And so Jesus was saying, I'm about to die here. I don't have time to quote the whole chapter. You read Psalm 22 and it'll give you a beautiful description of what I'm experiencing on the cross and what's going to happen after the cross. But I think the second thing Jesus was doing is he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he was experiencing for the very first time what it was like to have a broken relationship with God the Father. Because he took your brokenness and he took my brokenness and he put it upon himself on that cross and gave us his wholeness in his place. And for the first time he's experiencing brokenness. And that separation that brokenness brings just overwhelmed Jesus Christ as he was hanging there dying for our sin. When the angels shouted in Bethlehem on that first night Jesus was born, 
as they shouted glory to God in the highest and on earth, shalom to men on whom his favor rests. They were talking about wholeness. Yes, they wanted us to know about that Jesus offers us peace with God. Yes, they wanted us to know that Jesus offers us harmony with God. But I think most of all those angels in the sky that night wanted the shepherds and wanted you and me to know that Jesus Christ offers us wholeness in our relationship with God. Jesus had come into the world to put back together what we had irreparably broken. But I find it interesting that Jesus at times gives a mixed message about the peace that he brings. Now, the easy thing for me to do in this sermon would be just to focus on the positive verses about Jesus bringing peace and ignoring the ones that are a bit confusing or seem antithetical to those other verses. But let's look at a couple examples of verses of Jesus bringing peace that seem to disagree with each other. Here's a positive one. John 14:27. Jesus tells his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Without a doubt, Jesus promises to bring his followers shalom. Is that not true? It's very clear in Scripture. Jesus promises to bring us shalom, to bring us peace with God, harmony with others, and also to bring us wholeness with God. But at the same time, Don't forget what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 36. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Well, that's kind of a bummer. That doesn't sound very peaceful, does it? Why on earth would Jesus say that he did not come to bring peace with a sword? Why would he say that when the angels had made it so clear, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men? Why, when God back in Isaiah chapter 9 and over in Isaiah 53 made it so clear that Jesus was coming to bring us hope and peace, in fact, he'd be called the Prince of Peace. How could he be the Prince of Peace when he says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword? What gives? Well, would you agree when it comes to true peace that the world doesn't get it? Would you agree with me on that statement? When it comes to true peace, the world doesn't get it. The world thinks that peace comes on the heels of anti-bullying campaigns. become very popular recently. Not that they're a bad thing. But could those ever bring us wholeness with God? The world thinks that peace comes... By eliminating politically incorrect words from our vocabulary. Many think peace will come through the the perfect policy on gun control. Many think peace will come from reducing greenhouse gases. Here in the past week, many seem to indicate that we will have more peace this Christmas if we stop singing, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Many seem to think that we will have more peace at Christmas time if we stop playing that darn Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Because obviously that's messing up children across the nation. And I, I, I sit and I ponder this, and it just seems like absolute insanity. Do we truly think that that will bring us peace and harmony and more literally wholeness? If we stop singing, baby, it's cold outside, and stop watching Rudolph, 
and buy into every policy on gun control or eliminating greenhouse gases or any number of things that people come up with in this world. It's true. The world does not understand how peace is truly attained. Only Jesus Christ can make a person whole. Amen? That's the truth. But the problem is, the problem is, most people don't accept the truth about the path to peace. Most of our family members and co-workers and neighbors and classmates don't want to hear the truth. So when we embrace the shalom of Jesus Christ and receive peace with God and peace with others, many unbelievers around us will say, thanks but no thanks. I'm not interested in what you're selling. And so what happens is many around us, I dare say most around us, want nothing to do with the Prince of Peace, who ultimately is the only one who can bring true peace. And the Prince of Peace came to bring wholeness, but to those who reject him, he actually ends up bringing division. Does that make sense? Jesus came to bring wholeness with God. He came to bring wholeness in our relationships with our spouse and with our kids and with our parents and with our neighbors. But when people reject the Prince of Peace, Jesus, in fact, ends up bringing division. The good news of Jesus Christ is rightly called the gospel of peace. But the gospel of peace, when it is bitterly rejected, becomes more like the gospel of war. Some of you have discovered this at the Thanksgiving dinner table. When you have family members that adamantly object to anything related to Jesus or church, and you simply share a message or part of that message of peace, and it ends up creating friction, animosity, and war. The gospel of peace does not bring peace to those who harden their hearts to the gospel. But to those who are willing to accept it, the word of God is clear. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the only one who offers true and lasting peace. Peace and wholeness within our broken lives. Peace and wholeness within our relationships with others. And peace and wholeness in our relationship with God. I want to encourage you. If you've experienced this in your family in particular, in your own household, and you share a little bit of Christ's love and a little bit about the gospel, and it is met with opposition and all heck breaks loose, do not doubt the power of the message that you share. The message you share of Jesus Christ is true, and it is exactly what it has been claimed to be in Scripture. It is the message and the gospel of peace. You keep on sharing that as God leads you to share that with family and friends and co-workers and classmates and neighbors. You keep sharing it. It's not the gospel's problem. It's the hard heart and the blind eyes not receiving the truth that is being shared with them. That doesn't mean we pound people over the head with it. We do it in a loving way. But we continue to speak the truth in love. Amen? Four lessons on Jesus' hope and peace. I encourage you. Fill in these final blanks on your handout. I think all four of these are important. Two lessons on hope, two lessons on peace. Number one, hopelessness and Jesus can't coexist. Amen? Hopelessness and Jesus can't coexist. So when you're in the midst of an impossible situation, choose one or the other. Don't try to mix the two. The two can't coexist. 
So when you're in the midst of that impossible situation and there's, there's no way I can make it through this, there's no way I can pay the bills, there's no way I'm going to ever have a healed relationship with my spouse or my, my child or whoever it may be, there's no possible way this thing's impossible, you can go with that and accept impossibilities and leave Jesus out of it. But I think the much wiser thing to do is to bring Jesus into the midst of your impossibility because nothing is impossible with God. Second lesson on hope. At one time or another, people will let you down, but Christ never will. No one whose hope is in God will ever be put to shame. Just ask the great-great-grandson of Naomi. No one whose hope is in God will ever be put to shame, wrote King David. We put our hope in people. People let us down. Sooner or later, if it hasn't happened yet, sooner or later your spouse will let you down. Sooner or later your kids will let you down. Teenagers, sooner or later your parents will let you down. For many of you, it was sooner instead of later. Amen? Smart move not saying amen to that. Sooner or later, your pastor will let you down. Sooner or later, your mentors in the faith will let you down. That doesn't mean you give up on them. Keep loving them and giving them a second chance. And when you see a mess up, maybe point them in the right direction. Say, hey, maybe you didn't realize you said this. Or maybe you didn't realize you did this. And, and if that's a, a leader worth his salt, then he'll respond to that with a humble and open heart. And so what people will let us down, but Jesus Christ never will. You put your hope in him. Sometimes we get disappointed with Christianity. Sometimes we get disappointed with the church because we put our hope in people instead of having our hope squarely focused on Jesus Christ alone. Number three, first lesson on peace. Although God's path to peace is much different than the world's path to peace, both paths lead to wholeness and brokenness. Ultimately, the path you choose will reveal which relationships you most want to be whole and which ones you are willing to be broken. Now, this is a rather deep statement, I think, and just, I think it's important to allow this to sink in. When it comes to the world's offer of peace, make no mistake about it, when the world offers you a peace to your relationships with others, to some extent or another, that road to peace works. If you want to be popular by the world's standards, if you want to be liked, if you want to be respected, if you want to be a candidate for a Nobel Peace Prize, if you want to be a candidate for pats on the back and accolades in our culture, the world has a path, a path to peace with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with our culture. But make no mistake about it, if you take the world's path to peace you're saying, Jesus Christ, I'm not interested. And you might be popular and at peace with people in the world, but you're at war with God. And conversely, if you choose Jesus Christ's path to peace, the gospel of peace, holding on to that belief that we hold to as a church, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and there's only one way to heaven, and that's by Jesus Christ. There aren't a thousand roads to heaven. There's only one, and his name is Jesus, whether you like it or not. 
There's only one way to be forgiven, and that's through Jesus. There's only one way to have a relationship with God the Father, and that's through Jesus. This is a very politically incorrect message. This is a very unlikable message in the eyes of our culture. But if you choose the path of peace that Jesus Christ offers through himself, that is the road to peace with God. That is the road to forgiveness. That is the road to eternal life in heaven. But at the same time, you will be at war to some extent or another with the world because they hate the exclusivism and the uppity, we know best and our way is better than your way, perception of Christianity. And so when it comes down to it, when we choose a road, that road will lead to some level of peace in some relationships, and that road will lead to some level of war in other relationships. And you and I have to choose which road we're going to take. I don't know about you, but I've chosen to take the road of Jesus Christ because ultimately I'm much more concerned about what God thinks of me than what my next-door neighbor thinks of me. Ultimately, I'm more concerned with receiving those words from Jesus Christ himself, well done, good and faithful servant, than I am receiving some accolade by the world. I encourage you to think long and hard about which road you've taken, and you count the cost, and you choose the road that gives you peace in the relationships you believe are most vital, not just here on earth, but in the scope of eternity. Number four. The only path to peace and wholeness with God, both here on earth and in eternity, is the path of Jesus Christ himself. So to choose peace with God is to choose Jesus. And to reject Jesus is to reject peace with God. Heavenly Father, Those of us who have chosen to follow you as Lord and Savior know that the best path is your path. The best way is your way. Heavenly Father, we thank you for offering us hope in Jesus Christ. And I don't know why you chose to allow us to be born when we were born some 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus so we could experience what the world in Old Testament times couldn't experience, hope realized in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this privilege. Thank you for this honor. Help us to embrace the hope that Jesus Christ brings us this Christmas season. And once again, I ask for those, Lord, who feel a bit hopeless today, Lord, would you just fill them with hope? And those, Lord, whose hearts are not at peace, would you give them peace? Some of us, Lord, are experiencing this Christmas season without our loved ones. We just got to hear on Friday, Lord, from Mayor Garcia, who's experiencing yet another Christmas without her husband that she'd been married to for, I think it was some 65 years. Lord, those that are experiencing Christmas without loved ones, Lord, would you give them the peace that surpasses all understanding? You're so good. You're so faithful. You're so loving. You're so filled with grace. Help us, Lord, to take hold of you this Christmas in Jesus' name.